This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome back to the first edition of Plato's Cave for 2018. Uh, <laughs> welcome back, everyone. I'll turn your mics on, sorry. Um, uh, am I on? You're on now. Hello? You're here. You exist. Oh, okay. Uh, my name is Lisa Kovacevic. I'm just holding the fort whilst Thomas takes some time away from the show. Um, on the panel tonight, as always, is our peregrine film critic, Cerise Howard, and prolific film writer extraordinaire, Emma Westwood. <laughs> <laughs> I stole think, both of those things from online somewhere. Um, and we have a special really? guest tonight. <laughs> yeah, really. yeah, peregrine is out there. Um, <laughs> and tonight we have Sally Christie, our special guest. Um, Sally is a film writer and critic with an in-depth knowledge of an interest in 1970s underground cinema, censorship in film, subculture representations in cinema, controversial cinema and pop culture in education. Sally lectures in film history at Footscray City Films and has worked on film festivals such as Stranger With My Face International Film Festival, Melbourne Queer Film Festival, Monster Fest and the film collective Cinemaniacs. I feel seriously underqualified <laughs> with you in the room. Welcome, Thanks Sally. Thanks for having me. It's very exciting. Yeah. Welcome, Sally. Thank Welcome, Sally. You. Um, on tonight's show, as it's our first show back from the summer break, I'm told we'll be keeping things a little loose tonight, which fills me with more anxiety than our opening theme song. Um, and we'll be discussing what we've watched over the summer break and anything else that tickles our filmic fancy. Emma, would you like to kick things off? I would. I would. With The Shape of Water... I'm sure that uh, there's been a lot of discussion around this. Probably most people know what it's about, but it is um, a film that's um, set in mid-20th century America. It is about a, um, a mute, not deaf, just a mute woman who works at a strange uh, government facility that seems to be doing odd. It's kind of like the mid-20th century American version of the CSIRO, I'd like to think of it. And... Um, <laughs> As they bring a strange specimen into this uh, this facility that is a, um, a, a under amphibian underwater creature of some sort that's sort of half man half creature and this film turns into a love story and basically about her trying to sa- uh, save the creature from a terrible um, demise and I really like this film. Uh, I'll just say it straight up. I don't know. Um, I'm going to ask. I'm, I'm curious to know what Cerise thought of it. She only saw it last night. So, but um, this is uh, directed by Guillermo del Toro, and um, most people will be familiar with his work. Well, uh, um, Pacific Rim, Crimson Peak were a couple of his most recent titles, but not his best. Not no. his best. Far from. I'm glad to hear you say that about Pan's Pacific uh, Rim yeah. because I thought that was very. Um, uh, overhyped and people seem to... I think people really wanted to love it. Um, Pan's Labyrinth is an excellent film that he did, but I feel that um, with Guillermo del Toro, there's always been these glimpses of excellence um, and it has never come together in a really tight um, film. And this film, for me, is where he's got it right. This is his most complete Film and it feels like he's uh, his most confident film. Yeah, I feel like um, Pan's Labyrinth was great, but for the past decade, I don't feel that he's made anything that spectacular. I really liked his intro that he did for Treehouse of Horror 24 on The Simpsons. I loved that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Sally's coming in with the controversial stuff straight away. <laughs> Simpsons geeking out. But um, I loved The Shape of Water. I only saw it yesterday. 
Oh, and, Saint Therese. Yep. Okay. Mm. All right. And I thought it was beautiful. Um, was incredibly moved by it and his story of you know, society's misfits and where do we fit in? It was also a really beautiful colour palette. It was such a oh, nice yeah. film to watch and, and they, were, they were really quite um, conscious of that. There were jokes about green the whole way through the film. Yeah, well, when you say colour palette, it's just like 50 shades of green, yeah. really. It's so beautiful. So many shades. Because <laughs> teal, as they say, no. is a lovely shade of green. Yeah, there's eggshell. There were so yes. many. The tiles, the costumes, and it was all... I just felt that that was too much. That was like the Wizard of Oz on acid. It was too much. Oh, yeah. no, 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 no. You can never have too much of that. Really? Never have too much. And also... Um, the the character because it's always so easy for this sort of film to set up the sad sack heroine you know who needs to be saved by the white knight but there was talk of her with the surname Esposito being an orphan and it kind of suggests that she may have had um, an unfortunate upbringing Mm. but this character never felt right from the start of the film she never felt um, unhappy with her lot you know she was kind of uh, every day basking in sort of joy and masturbation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and I love that as well. I love that it wasn't like he was saving her or anything like that. She just, you know, she just found someone that she connected with. Yeah. Mm, someone fishy. 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 <laughs> <laughs> and may or may not be an Aztec god. I mean, there are all these little other threads to the whole narrative fabric of this really rather lovely film some of which I thought were really fleshed out and others were just sort of window dressing but rather yeah. lovely. But I thought one of the things that I, I really was intrigued by was, um, so he's, he's got this uh, gay neighbour, the, the old man, Richard Jenkins, very sweet. He hasn't, he, he's clearly pro- probably lo- the loneliest figure in the entire film. Mm. Mm. Um, has an unfortunate little uh, encounter with the, the burger flipping dude uh, at the burger joint up the road. <laughs> Um, you know he's 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 very vulnerable and he's he's clearly had a bad trot lately too. But I, I but just to, just to put that misfitsy business into the, the the thread of the film that everyone who who we asked to sympathise was including a sympathetic Russian figure, yeah. um, <laughs> a sympathetic double agenty type person. Um, and uh, but that that was all, all, all you know in, part of the fabric, but not critical to appreciating the film. But the the things that were less critical to the to the film that I really admired was just that so gay neighbors watching a lot of classic uh television but films on TV with queer icons at a time before anyone had really you know the idea of the queers reclaiming <laughs> these people like Betty Grable or Carmen Miranda or Carmen Miranda yeah <laughs> but they're just sitting down and appreciating these films together uh he and uh her Sally Hawkins. Elisa. Elisa, yeah. Elisa. So that was quite nice. But I noted at the same time they're living above an an almost utterly empty cinema. I know. I thought the same thing. I was like, why aren't they watching them downstairs? Yeah, exactly. And they're a film. Yeah. They need the business. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess this was just for some reason, even though it's not significant to the plot, but this must have been set at that exact turning point where TV threatened cinema. Mm. And it's about to go cinemascope and widescreen and and be a a, a turning point. And it didn't need to be set exactly then, but it... It, everything about the film within the film, 
the films mm-hmm. within the film and the TV sets within the film suggested it was. And I just really liked that, actually. It was actually, there were many elements of the film that were around that, um, the changing of era uh, that, uh, as you said, TV over um, cinema and also it was all around futurism and technology. Did I see even Michael Shannon's character, who he played such a great evil, evil person in it with rotting fingers, um, <laughs> getting the new car, you know, the idea of what the new car represented and and things like that. And it was a film that was really about the triumph of the individual. Um, both governments were shown as bad. It wasn't goody-baddie. Um, it also was, and I feel this was actually something that came out across all the films I watched over Christmas. It was, or Christmas, New Year slash um, Hanukkah, public holidays, whatever that we've just had, um, that the that all of the films were sort of had unexpected bucking of cliches. There were lots of bucking of cliches in the film. Like there's an, a moment, and I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen the film, but everyone here will know, where something happens to the Richard Jenkins character with the creature, where the creature does something that's really quite brutal and wild and you expect him to hate the creature suddenly and he doesn't. Mm. He, he excuses it and it, it just feels like I, I'm feeling like a change in mainstream narrative that's going on at the moment in cinema and I really like it. I hope it continues. I found the film made me really, like, uh, the intention was for us to embrace the outsider. There are all these outsiders but I just felt that they, they were... There was archetypes that sort of verged on stereotypes, though. I thought that the only remarkable thing about Elise, Eliza was, yeah, it was that, Eliza. She was a, Eliza. that she was a mute. And I didn't like, like, why was the first, ex, like, engagement we had with her, her in a bathtub masturbating to a timer? I didn't, I didn't, it didn't gel well for me. And that, that her friend is, you know, a poor black woman who speaks for her and her other friend is this poor marginalised gay man. I just felt that it was all a bit preachy. Am I really... <laughs> Maybe you were picking up on them trying too hard not to create a stereotype and yeah, therefore maybe. we're creating a stereotype, stereotype. for you maybe. from not trying I, to create a stereotype. Well, it's just like this is what outsiders <laughs> look like, you know, and I, and I just, and I found, I found the, the sex um, really strange and I... And I <laughs> But we're asked to believe that this is, uh, you know, that we can. I, I couldn't. I couldn't side with her, with the lead character and her desire for this fish creature. I found him Aztec really god. His Aztec, Aztec god. god. <laughs> <laughs> him um i found him kind of like it's verging on bestiality for me <laughs> i just like i just i'm not i'm not ready to go there you know and um and i just found that 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 sort of negated against what the film was trying to do which was to sort of have you side with these outsiders and that love will conquer all and romance will conquer all i just found it all a bit preachy but I, it is positioned as a fairy tale from the outset sure yeah. but i think actually think it would be a, a better film for children if, if it wasn't for the bestiality <laughs> But the I masturbation think- could stay. That, <laughs> yeah. Masturbation to an egg timer, I'm, I'm, I'm by good, the way. Yeah, I'm good with that. I'm, what was with all the eggs as well? I, bet that, I thought that was really strange, she, her giving him the eggs as this was their sort of communication, like her feeding him eggs. Foreplay. I found it disgusting. <laughs> Don't you I use eggs? I, I found the eggs a bit like gross eggs. too. eggs. <laughs> all things. I also found that the progression of their relationship, yeah. even though it wasn't like a natural relationship, he, it was very um, quick. There oh. wasn't kind of any sort of 
building to it. It just was there and happened and that was it. There yeah. was a relationship between them. There was, yeah, no sort of arc towards that. No, no. So, yeah, for, for me, I don't know. I just... I, You're very picky, people. I am very picky. <laughs> well, that's love it. I did. <laughs> you loved it, but Lisa... <laughs> no, I mean, it was it, it was very... Um, he, he clearly loves um, classic Hollywood cinema and it, it's set sort of in the 50s, 60s, post-war era during that, um, you know, the, the Russian... What was it called? Cold War. The Cold War. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it's set in that time, but it also borrows from cinema of that time, most obviously Creature from the Black Lagoon and, um, and, and the sets were fabulous, you know, like you said, they and they borrow from, yeah, probably things like The Wizard of Oz and, you know, and I, I kind of enjoyed that. It also had this almost... Almost Giga quality about it too. Like it, it didn't wouldn't have looked out of place in an alien film. And I think him, his actual no, character, no, or no, all the, the other sets, stuff. The sets, I thought, oh, yeah. you know, were quite, quite kind of, <laughs> yeah. Something a bit I guess sexual about vaginal openings and stuff within the <laughs> film. But um, yeah. Anyway, I yeah, it was quite um raunchy, shocking at times. But I, I did was surprised yeah. at that. Yeah. 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 Al- yeah. Although Del Toro was quite skittish about the sex. Like it wasn't. He didn't really explore how. <laughs> I don't know how that would work, mm. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. For, for me, I don't, I don't... I find it the most bizarre story to have all this Oscar buzz, this girl... Really? Oh, no, it, yeah. is, yeah. it is an unorthodox yeah. Oscar um, yeah. frontrunner, actually, isn't it? It is. It's the one with the most gongs up I, for grabs. I actually found when, um, when I first watched it, I thought this is a really, really strong mainstream film. Mm. So it doesn't actually surprise me. Mm. It does. It's very clever. Like I said, it's sort of... I, I felt that it didn't do... It moved away from cliché and that was this kind of movement that I'm seeing, you know... In some of these films that we're talking about tonight that I thought was really great and um, I, it doesn't surprise me that a lot of people have fallen fallen in love with it. <laughs> so. um, well, The Shape of Water is still screening. It's on national release if you would like to check out some underwater loving. <laughs> um, <laughs> what have you been watching, Cerise? What have I been watching? Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've unusually seen everything that we're going to cover yet this evening, I think. Um, I'm not going to dwell on the post for very long, A, because I think it's a bit bland and B, because no one else can really chime in on this one because I think I am alone in having seen the latest Spielberg film. But I was intrigued because it's um, getting so much, um, not exactly praise, but so much notice given how timely its release is, given the great Trumpian world in which we now um, live, live the word. I don't know. We we survive. Survive. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's oh, John Williams. Now this this man has to be stopped. <laughs> it's always been a problem for me, Spielberg. That he's always had the tendency to not underscore things but overscore things in collaboration with John Williams, his composer, his go-to composer since almost forever. And the post is a film that has so much sort of uh, new Hollywood vibe about it, 70s, sort of all the president's men sort of vibe, and it's you know, not unrelated to that film and, and the, that, that world and that newspaper. But uh, John Williams and the, those strings, <laughs> he should be strung up by them, I feel. It's, it's just too much. Um, but it's a, a really... Interesting film, nonetheless, because there's all these wonderful character actors filling out the cast. I mean, yes, you've got Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep in the main roles doing their Hanksy Streepy thing, but then you've got the likes of uh, he's Mr. Ubiquitous at the moment, Michael Stuhlberg, yes. who was in The Shape of Water as mm. as Dimitri slash Bob, yeah. and here he has a, a, a more much more of a supporting supporting role than 
He's quite prominent in The Shape of Water. But um, the actor who plays Saul, better called Saul, what's his oh, name, Bob? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Bob Odenkirk. Odenkirk? Something like that. Is that how you say it? Yeah. There's actually a lot of comedians. Yeah, a lot of comedians. David Cross is in the cast of this film. It's quite an improbable Spielberg cast. And as if to compensate, he overdoes it with the John Williams score and all the the rest of the Spielberger sort of goings on. So um, an interesting film narratively, but uh, aesthetically, I find it just uh, a little irksome. And, and it just resolves too neatly. And I don't think anything can resolve too neatly anymore, can it? We don't live in a world in which order thrives. No. Uh, or which we even find much order amongst the chaos. <laughs> <laughs> Hence the return of Plato's cave to the Triple R Airways. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone else seen the film? Anyone no. else want to chime in? No. No. Okay. no. All right. Well, well should we, should we move oh, on we should move I can, right I can say something about it. But no, no, no. Please do. No, I haven't seen it. <laughs> have no, an opinion, I'm, I'm, I'm being cheeky. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I saw um, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri recently. Um, which again has all this Oscar buzz around it. Um, it was made by, what's his name? McCon- oh, Martin, Martin McDonough. McDonough. Thank you. Um, <laughs> he did In Bruges. In Bruges, Seven Psychopaths. Yeah. 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 Um, and this, yeah, this has a very, um, you know, Coen Brothers, Midwestern noir vibe about it, I think, um, which I quite I quite liked. It's um, Fr- It stars Frances um, McDormand, um, who plays a mother in this film whose daughter um, was murdered and um, she, the, the, the cops are doing nothing about solving the case. It's been nearly a year or something like that and she makes this bold move, move to paint these three billboard signs out, that lead into her town with, it, with this sort of controversial message which is directed at the town's um, chief of police, William Willoughby, who's played by um, Woody Harrelson um, and um, all sorts of um, stuff ensues, Her, not, some hilarity. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 everyone that I've spoken to kind of loves this film. I, again, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I sort of felt that... You know, the film's about um, McDormand playing this character, Mildred Hayes, whose daughter's been been brutally raped and killed and seemingly, you know, forgotten by local police, but also forgotten by the filmmaker. I just felt like that that, that character was just sort of just a plot device, um, which I found a little bit hurtful <laughs> to, the, to the mother and, you know... I don't know, to women, I suppose. Um, and so with the exception of, like, this one flashback, I felt that supposed driving force of McDormand's vendetta um, was just much like the billboards, just a backdrop, and I just thought that that was sort of a sort of lost opportunity there. And although McDormand does a good job of, you know, getting to that emotional depth mm. and stuff. Um, and the other thing that really bothered me about it was the comedy. I, f- I found, like, th- there's a couple of characters in there that are just used as sort of punching bags for comedy. And one is um, Peter Dinklage, who a lot of people know from Game of Thrones. As, what's his character's name? The little... Tyrion. Tyrion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, who, who um, is, what do they call him, the imp in that's awful. But anyway, in this film, um, it's just, he's just there for midget gags and I just thought that that, again, was sort of offensive and, and as was um, McDormand's ex-husband uh, is married now to some 18-year-old pretty thing and she's just meant to be this vacuous... Um, she's an Australian, you know. Is she? Samara, she she's Hugo Weaving's um, niece. Right. Samara Weaving. Yeah, right. So, yeah, yeah. Again, she, she was just sort of there for gags 
legs and we laugh at her stupidity because young women, young pretty women are dumb or something. I just sort of found, I don't know, I just sort of found the script a bit juvenile and the humour very juvenile. And um, there's a scene where she sort of walks in and witnesses essentially domestic violence and then makes a joke. She's like, oh, it seems a little tense in here. I'll just pop out, shall I? And and the audience sort of laughs and you're sort of told when to laugh. I found it a bit patronising. And again, Sam Rockwell's character, much worse, who is um, this extremely racist cop. um, And and his racism is used as humour a lot in the film, which again, I found really problematic. And it's also... I, I also found he he has this major uh, character shift halfway through the film, which I felt came out of nowhere. I don't know. What did you guys think? Yeah, I think... See, I, I was interested... I, I was only interested in seeing this film because it won the Golden Globe for Best Drama slash Comedy, whatever that, role, that award is that they give out at the Golden Globes, the big one. Um, and because it didn't really appeal to me in any other way. And I think I thought... I went into it because well, the way it looks to me is um, one of those cause campaign films where someone, you know, puts up the billboards and they, they attack, they're the little guy who attacks the big it's, guy yeah, and then David they somehow, yeah, and then they <laughs> somehow, you know, truth and justice and the American way wins mm. out in the end. So for me, I found that it, sort of worked into this sort of bucking of cliche thing where I didn't expect it. It it was something different to that. Really the three billboards were very secondary to everything else that was going on. Mm. So I I did, look, I did enjoy it, but out of all the films that we're talking about, I found it to be the actually less enjoyable of all the films. It Mm. was just, it had more purple patches, let's say, than anything else. I think, unfortunately, our Abby Cornish wasn't great in it and I wasn't sure whether she was actually meant to be playing an Australian in Missouri (laughs) or something like that. Yeah, and the, the, um, you know, the age difference between her and Woody Harrelson was yeah, odd but it, you know not necessarily a problem but her performance was strange I thought Samara Weaving played her bimbo role quite well oh she did no no you I know? think she was written poorly I think that that performance was great but I agree with you on Abby Cornish and that's a gripe I have for a lot of Hollywood yeah. films when you're pairing up some you know decrepit not decrepit Woody Harrelson <laughs> looks amazing I don't know how old he is but he's clearly over 60 he's been around since I was a baby um but yeah. uh yeah I don't know I get so tired of seeing older men with younger women and that's it's just a given, you know, that, yeah. you know, that's the age that they need to be. I find that, yeah, I'm sick of it. And, yes, her accent was bizarre. It was strange. And I think, it, you know, it was they may have tried a little hard to create quirky characters. Right. And the idea is, you know, Sam Rock, Rockwell won uh, the big uh, big. A golden globe for his his role and I mm. thought he was he was excellent because you did actually get to the point where you liked him and that is hard to create that you know that changing character um but overall yeah purple patches for me let's just I, say. I agree so I'm talking too much on this one I agree about Sam Rockwell um that he becomes likable and stuff but I felt that his his likability is at um, the sacrifice of the black people he's tortured. So, you know, he is this really awful racist cop and we're meant to sympathise with him when he has this turnaround, this shift in personality, but we don't really sympathise with the people that he's tortured and inflicted pain upon. And I thought that was a big flaw for me in the film. That's, that brings me to something that I, I find really interesting in, in the, the, the present 
the present day, uh, there's almost a demand for any time a character or a narrative takes a turn towards, say, victimising someone, especially a minority or some disenfranchised uh, portion of the, the population. Uh, there's always a suggestion that if something bad happened to them, we need the film to then somehow compensate and make some sort of manoeuvres so that we can feel OK about ourselves and, mm. and be assured that we live in a moral universe and things are just. And, and I think it is interesting. It's always problematic when a film absolutely doesn't do that, as this one really doesn't. It, it really... You know, she, we're, we're built up to to dislike this character first because, yes, he's a racist. Racism is bad. This is obvious. <laughs> but then we don't come back to the people that he's affected at all. It's all about his journey to redemption. We're supposed to side with that as well as with Francis McDormand's character who has some anger management issues. <laughs> Very funny ones. I did enjoy the... It's the, basically the, a film yeah. about dealing with anger, I yeah. think. Yeah. 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 But yeah. I, I do think it's a, a, always an interesting problem when a film makes no effort to um, address a gaping hole in its moral universe. And in a way, that, that makes this film jibe quite well with one of the other real traditions it's taking from, which is the Western. It really has an, a whole frontier town, uh, avenging, crusading type figure um, with That's racial, a really good point. Yeah, mm. with, I didn't think of with, it as a western, but you're completely right. Yeah, and and a lot of those westerns had a, um, extremely questionable race mm, politics, yep. and uh, so I think this is kind of true to genre, even though it's a mashup of genres. I mean, I, I, I'm a bit reluctant to let the film off the hook altogether, but I'm also a little hesitant to want any film to just want to balance out all mm. of its moral transgressions, so that at the end of it, you go, ah, oh, it's yeah. all, yeah. it's all resolved. Yeah, I think mm. that would kind of essentially lead to boring cinema. <laughs> None <laughs> of us want that. Yeah. Also, we, we want conflict we, we and drama. Wouldn't, we wouldn't have a radio show. That's true. <laughs> if we didn't have That's anything true. to unpick in a film, we'd, we'd go, well, what, why, why are we here? What is, that, what is the point of us? I enjoy Three Billboards more than I initially thought that I would. I would say on this list it is, once again, probably my least favourite. Um, but McDonald's fa- previous film, Seven Psychopaths, yes. I really didn't like at yeah. all. I found it very lacklustre and kind of thought, went into that thinking this would be similar. But I think the performances in this were great. They were, outstanding. But I did um, have an issue with Sam Rockwell's sort of character arc as well. I found that made me roll my eyes all the way back in my head quite a bit when it's just kind of switched. I was like, eh. Um, But, yeah, I did think that I did enjoy it more than I essentially thought I would. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, look, you know, for, for all my criticism, I still think it was a well-made film, you know. It was beautifully yeah. shot. And, again, I agree with you all. The, act, the performances were really top-notch. Mm. And Sam Rockwell did a great performance. I just think that that was written poorly I, is, was my only mm. criticism. Mm. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome back. You're on Plato's Cave, and today it's our first show back, and uh, it's all a bit, bit loose. <laughs> <laughs> a lot to cram in. A lot to cram in. We We're cramming. Yeah. We're just talking about films we've seen over the summer. Uh, who wants to talk next? Sally, who is our guest presenter? Sally Christie. What, what have you seen? Uh, on Friday, I saw I Tonya, which of course is the story of the first American uh, skater to land a triple axle, Tonya Harding, and her floor plan to take out Nancy Kerrigan. Um, so I think we all kind of know that story. I remember it very vividly as a child of when it was all in the, broke out in the news. And I thought 
Craig Gillespie, who I found out from Emma earlier, is an Australian director. He is. <laughs> He's Australian. Go Aussie, Aussie, oi, oi, oi. I'm, I'm never going to say that again. You've just heard it the last time, all right? Um, Margot Robbie produced it as well, so as well as starring, yeah. yeah. Um, I think he has a really... This, this film wasn't what I expected it to be. It deals with issues of abuse in kind of a really interesting way that I kind of saw it more that it was going to be a comedy. And you can see that in his other work like Lars and the Real Girl and his work on the United States of Tara that he has a really kind of tender way of dealing with very serious issues. And I think that really came through in I, Tonya. Um, one other thing that I found really interesting about it was the, folk, the, the focus wasn't on her relationship and her rivalry with Nancy. That's kind of what I expected would be in it. It was more sort of, I guess, there was four different viewpoints that was in the it, film. Actually, four, that was interesting because I don't think... viewpoints? Yeah. Was, Nancy, Nancy was Kerrigan didn't so even minimal. get a... She didn't even have a line, I no, don't think. No, I don't think yeah, she did either. Yeah. I don't... Yeah, I was very surprised at that and thought it was a really sort of intriguing way to put the movie forth and not have that as the key focus, which once you're saying, you know, with changing audience expectations, that's certainly what I expected of this movie. I did really enjoy it. I thought it was very, very reminiscent of um, Gus Van Sant's To Die For. Um, oh, Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recall that. Yeah, yeah. So that kind of breaking the fourth wall and the you know real crime that has happened. The same with To Die For, um, and doing a sort of mockumentary, then going to the storytelling. Mm. Uh, Although this one is based on a true story. So was To Die For. Oh, was To Die yeah. For as well. Yeah, both, I did not know yeah. that. Amazing. Yeah. So scary. That. Yeah. 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 Um, so it really reminded me of To Die For in that way that. It was a very similar style, but I guess also at that it was told around the same time that To Die For was released. So I guess we're kind of looking at that same era in film where directors were kind of breaking the fourth wall, doing that kind of mockumentary sort of thing. So it's possible that he's paying homage to that style of film mm. in a way, I guess. Um, yeah. I thought Margot Robbie was great in it. She, it was, yeah, once again, I think all really strong performances. Alison Janey, she was excellent, but then anyone I think would be in that, you know, mm. that character, she was awful, but... You know, very entertaining. Yeah, it was kind of interesting watching <laughs> watching this because I, I like the way it sort of posited at the start something along the lines of it's based on real interviews or wildly contradictory interviews or something. So I think that he used that fourth wall, uh, um, breaking of the fourth wall to, to try and say, well, is this true or not? You know, this is a different perspective or um, because there was a bit of, uh, they actually played a bit of the interviews um, with some of the characters at the actual, um, lo- the people that were actually involved in the incident and that at the end of the film and they're quite unbelievable. Like you just look at it and go, I can't yeah. believe these are real people mm. saying I, this sort of thing. I had seen a, quite a long time before this film came out, the majority of those interviews, I'm very <laughs> into the into the story of Tonya Harding. So I, I think that he did a really good job. Those characters are totally unbelievable and I think that he really yeah. captured them, particularly the character Sean, yeah. their kind of bumbling um, mate of Jeff's. Uh, yeah, he was just... 
complete idiot yeah. like that, like really on point with it. I think a lot yeah. of uh, there's a documentary called The Price of Gold, which a lot of those interviews come from. Yeah, mm. I think I'm, I'm not a fan of biopics myself, and I really, really love this, mm. um, which was a uh, well, it wasn't really a surprise. I'd kind of been worded up to it by a few people in the know, and I think that that it came through um, by the way he just didn't handle it like a normal biopic and um, the way this could have been if it had played as a, a straightforward biopic it could have been really really freaking bleak um, but I think that was a very wise decision to sort of play on the comedy and uh, make it a bit more fun and make it a bit of more of a rollicking ride with this sort of you know really high energy music track as well. Yeah he has yeah. a really unique way of doing that because a lot of the content, the subject matter is very serious. A lot of it is dealing with different kinds of abuse that she is experiencing and still managing to keep it upbeat in a way that isn't being, you know, taking the piss yeah. or being disrespectful to her experience. You well, know? She, she was yeah. really like a sweet charity character, yeah. Yeah. as in, you know, she she had dreams, she wanted to get a... She wanted to rise above what was seemed to be her lot mm-hmm. in life, but ultimately she could never get beyond it yeah. because she was stuck in... She was cursed with... The, she was scarred by being system. white. Tra- yeah. yeah, it was mm-hmm. the class system and she was never... She could be the best skater ever ever and she was never, never going to get, get, past get that. anywhere, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to imagine um, a version, uh, a re-hash a re, uh, of Kurosawa's Rashomon where each of the characters takes time to address the camera directly and and uh, cast aspersions upon the footage just screened like happens a couple of times in this film. You know, that was one of the first films that's really gave rise to this idea that narratives could be unreliable and the characters within films might have unreliable memories and... Therefore, that film told the uh, versions of the same events sort of sequentially without ever breaking a fourth wall or so. It just went, right, okay, here's one version and here's another, here's another and here's another. Mm. Um, I actually really quite tickled by the idea now of Toshiro Mifune and, <laughs> and our company just uh, breaking, breaking characters, still in their period garb and uh, just staring down the barrel of the camera and um, it's like, no, that wasn't how it happened at all. That's not what I... Um, yeah, I I did enjoy that. that. That device worked in this film. It can be very contrived and not not uh, works. You know, be so alienating that it takes you too much out of the film. But um, all those characters are larger than life. It was quite a shock to see that footage at the end that yeah. I wasn't familiar with mm. Sally at all. I'd never seen that stuff and realised actually that these characters weren't that exaggerated. Especially the the oh bumbler, gosh. the bumbling plotter and schemer, a dreadful human being. Mm. Uh, infuriating <laughs> but yeah fun film Margot Robbie is sensational um, she apparently did all that skating herself are you serious well yeah, I think there I was think a there bit was, of digital manipulation uh, some rotoscoping digi- no 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 and, yeah. that's what I was going to say there's digital manipulation but she actually it is her that's physically insane. because she had to do a triple axel they wanted someone they said who can we get to do the triple axel and they said there's two people in the world who can do it at the moment and they're trading for the Olympics so we've got to get her to do the moves and that's still really a huge thing because if you put me on the ice I'm telling you I'm not looking even even with CG I'm not looking anything I like don't that. I even stand up. And <laughs> and then you know so we they used CG then to complete the stuff. But yeah yeah. Wow. She was she was skating. <laughs> is she a skater? He's like a, I don't she just, think, I don't she think so. Just learn for the film. That's, surely. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. It's crazy. I've tried ice skating. It's not yeah. easy. I know. <laughs> Once and never I was again. like Bambi legs, you know, going out <laughs> to the sides. <laughs> uh, 
Um, on Friday, I went and saw Warwick Thornton's new film, Sweet Country. A lot of people will know Warwick Thornton's last feature. Well, yeah, last feature, I suppose it is, which was Samson and Delilah back in 2009, which was this amazingly brutal uh, look at, um, you know, marginalised Indigenous teenagers in Alice Springs. It was incredibly nuanced and broke a lot of ground, won a lot of awards. Um, and since then, he's also a cinematographer and, and since then he's worked on a lot of documentaries Um Actually, recently it was uh, We Don't Need a Map, which I think is still screening at Acme till tomorrow if you want to go see oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. it's about um, Aboriginal people's relationship to the Southern Cross, amongst other things. Um, and there's also an exhibition that sits alongside that at Acme. But, um, yeah, Sweet Country is his sort of first return to, to feature filmmaking. And, and I have to say, like, going into this film, I felt that absence. I was like, oh, it's been such a long time and I, I really love this filmmaker and I, and I, I really love this film. It was epic. He returns to Alice Springs and that sort of ochre-drenched landscape, but it's 1929 um, uh, and it's it's a Western, essentially. It's an Australian Western, but I, I, I sort of think the genre worked really well for, um, you know, examining detail, issues of race and colonisation, um, uh, things that are still relevant today and and I know like I think you know whenever um an Aboriginal filmmaker or an Indigenous filmmaker brings out a film there's sort of this um almost like a a, a knee-jerk sort of desire or something to, to praise it and a bit you know because it feels like the PC thing to do but I, I you know I think I think that's sort of offensive I actually think this this is a great film regardless of who, who made it and an important one I think people sort of think oh we have to sort of praise these films because they need to be part of that canon which isn't that bigger canon you know so yeah that's that's why I think people feel that need but like but like you said yeah I, I think that it's to it, it's so much more than that and he's mm. so much more than just a, a, a single issue filmmaker that's right and when you look at the way he sh- and he shot it himself when you look at the way he shoots the film like he has this amazing knowledge of world cinema you can you can see it and he knows the western genre and also just little things like him playing the story of the kelly gang film in it which is you know the first Mm. believed to be the first ever feature-length film and it's australian film so he's he's actually um infusing this this film that people could write off as a a a single issue film if they wanted to with um this amazing um, cinema history of the world. Mm, mm. It's interesting you mentioned the Kelly gang because um, the, the lead character, Sam Kelly, um, is an outlaw in this film, but he's an Aboriginal outlaw. Um, he's killed a white man in self-defence. Yeah. And, and now there's sort of a sheriff, you know, trying to hunt him down through an outback that is so unfamiliar to him. And I thought it was telling that they screen the Kelly gang during the film because it's sort of... Um, it sort of reminds us of how Australians, um, you know, value white outlaws, but we don't value black ones, essentially. And I thought that was really clever, a really mm. clever play on the genre as well. It's a beautiful film. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a really stunning filmmaker. The, the cinematography is gorgeous. It uh, is so evocative of Western imagery, but just made that little bit uncanny because it's familiar, but it's a, it's... It's, it's a territory that should be more familiar to us. We live in this country, but we don't know that part of the world. I, I say fairly confidently speaking on behalf of everyone in this room. Parts of that look I've like... I've never been yeah. to Alice Springs. Yeah. 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 Well, parts of that terrain look like Monument Valley, look like Arizona, look like the scenery we know from John Ford Westerns. Yes, it's they so, do. And yet it's not that. Yeah. It's really not. Yeah. And 
Uh, I think the uh, I think Australia is just the perfect setting for westerns. I've always felt that, and you know, something like the proposition. It's, it was a bit contentious. Uh, some people loved it, some people hated it. I was in the loving it camp because I was just so excited by the idea of an Australian western. It just works so well, mm. and this the, the tracking of that that idea of tracking the outlaw through that. I mean, that's just such a trapping of a western. So many westerns have dealt with that, yet he manages to make it so original. He does. And there's something really interesting that the editor, I think it's Nick Myers, I think that's the editor's name, he does these incredible flashbacks and flash forwards Mm. that happen during a scene. So, you know, two characters are in dialogue, they're in conversation and they're talking about what they're going to do and then it might flash back or forward, you don't know, to a bloodied shot of one of their faces or something. So it has this sort of terrifying jolt but it's sort of, it's done seamlessly and it's, I've never seen anything like it actually. Um, maybe it has been used before as a, as a um, device, I don't know, but I thought that was really clever and fresh, you know, mm. even though we're looking at a, 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 you know an old genre. I'm mm. certain it has been used before, but an example's not coming to mind. <laughs> yeah. Just that thing where it is ambiguous, whether it is forward or yes, back. Yes, that's the word, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's really adroitly done and everything about the film, even it's one little moment of comedy in amongst all what is really quite bleak, there is a wonderful, you could almost call it a musical number. Mm, yes. Sam Neill, yes. um, upon request, strikes up a song and it's hilarious. <laughs> and I feel almost awkward finding it funny because, you know, the film is deadly serious and you know it will be again very shortly. But that, that moment does come as a bit of welcome light relief. Yeah, it does. And I think the fact that this film set in 1929 is quite telling. Like the... People are still alive from not that were born in, yeah. you know, in 1929, and at that time, you know, people were using black people as slaves and as prisoners, and were treating them horrendously. And um, there was this massive clash of cultures. And you know, I think that, I, yeah, some people have criticised the film and said, oh, you know, if this had been made 20 years ago, it might have, it might have been a bit more pertinent or something. I think that's not true. I think that we need to keep seeing these things on our cinema screens to, you know, remind us of these issues. You know, we just celebrated being. Australian on a day that's deeply offensive to the Aboriginal people of this country and I, I think to have a film like this out now is really, really important. It released the day before. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Very, very uh, pointedly. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. I don't think that was a coincidence, no. let's just say. No, <laughs> no. no. Um, look, we we're very sh- short on time so yeah. I'll keep us moving along. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Yes, and Triple R is where you are. You are on the very tail end of a very rushed Plato's oh Cave. Some special. I can't believe we had to. <laughs> we've got three minutes left um, <laughs> to talk about the last film uh, for, for the evening, which is Emma. It's a film about peaches and dancing yeah. badly in the 80s. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. It's a psychedelic furs and, um, yeah, yeah, peaches. Yes, yes, <laughs> peaches. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen this, but um, Call Me By Your Name is the, the directed by Luca Guadagnino and written by James Ivory, him of uh, Merchant Ivory fame. Um, lots of very flowery English um, period films, basically. Mm. And um, this film, oh, lots of buzz. I think it's actually been just announced that they're going to do a sequel of yeah, all the things, which has. I think is that's the most unlikely <laughs> film for a sequel. But anyway, um, it's uh, basically it's a coming-of-age film um, set in Italy, intellectual family. Um, they have a sort of like a scholar come and stay with them for the summer period and work with the father. And um, he develops a 
relationship with, and this is Army Hammer, the um, actor who plays that role. He develops a relationship with Timothée Chalamet, who plays the um, the young son of uh, of my favourite actor. Uh, Michael Stuhlbach. Oh, was he in this as well? Yes. yes. In fact, I think this is his his uh, role of the um, of the year uh, or the holiday season, let's say, because I don't know what he's got coming up. He is very. He's, it, there's just a beautiful monologue between father and son in this that's just you know beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And people have talked. This is the word that springs to mind when everyone talks about this film. Beautiful. Um, there was one observation I had that when I bring it up with people, everyone sort of looks at me blankly. But initially I was really quite shocked by how young <laughs> Timothée's character was compared to... Um, yeah, yeah, mm. and I was quite shocked. I thought, oh, hang on, he couldn't be the one that's, you know, mm. that's mm. the love interest. But, you know, uh, I guess that's... And uh, no one no one felt that, but I think that's probably um, kudos to Luca here because he does manage to sell the relationship as a relationship of equals, even though one is obviously younger and even says, I'm not as experienced, but um, he is definitely of the intellectual um, equal of um, Army Hammer's character. Um, and... Uh, you know, fantastic um, film. Uh, I I cannot fault it except for saying it was a tiny bit too long, but that's the fault of many films these days. Mm. Uh, look, yeah, it's a gorgeous film. Uh, it didn't move me, which was uh, surprising to me, but it wow. stuck with me. Mm. The, the monologue at the end, which is the one that's affecting everybody so much, I, I was expecting to be reduced to some sort of teary mess, and it totally didn't do that to me, nor did the, the closing shot, which is gorgeous. Yeah. But they stuck with me, so I respect that a lot. That was one thing I kind of I, I liked about it because it I didn't feel particularly moved by it either. And I thought, gee, it's really great to see a queer film that's not ending in tragedy. Mm. Um, well, know. it wasn't. It wasn't about um, uh, overcoming obstacles as no. such. The parents saying, "No, you can't be that," or mm. whatever. So that was a great angle. Yeah. Not to. It was just a love story. Yeah, exactly. And I thought. I thought that was really sort of refreshing to see. I'm subtly playing our outro music. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Sally, Christy, Thank for you. joining us tonight. Um, this uh, Next week we will be discussing Phantom Thread, Molly's Game, and ending with a happy end. Happy end. Um, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. th- <laughs> thanks, guys. Sorry we've run a little bit over time, but thanks for listening to Plato's Cave. You can uh, re-listen on the podcast version. Thank you to Faith Everard who uh, edits that for us. Uh, we'll see you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.